do thank you for our opportunity to gather together here this morning and to be under the means of grace so that you can sanctify us. We do pray that as we look into the book of Proverbs, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom so that we would live lives that are pleasing to you even in these troubling times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear ones, I've uh, wanted to teach the book of Proverbs for some time. And uh, what's interesting is we begin the book of Proverbs. We're studying material that we normally don't study. And what I mean by that is normally as Bob and I are teaching through the New Testament or even the Old Testament, we're either dealing with narrative where you're having huge blocks of information like in paragraph form come to you. And typically you're reading for the main point within paragraphs. Um, Other times we're reading epistles where you're getting didactic teaching and you're getting a lot of information in just a few verses. But what's interesting is we look at the book of Proverbs, we're going to be looking at pithy sayings that are designed to give wisdom, but as you're going to find out, they're not always a guarantee, and that's what sometimes troubles people, is they look to, for example, the book of uh, Ephesians that we're studying with Bob, and if something is stated, it's going to happen, or if there's a prophecy, it's going to happen. But in the book of Proverbs, it's giving us generalities, generalities as to the way the world is and how we should act. But if we take those generalities as always foolproof, you'll end up coming up with a circumstance in which it doesn't fit. And so sometimes that bothers people. The other thing I want you to see today is we're going to be looking at the structure and poetry and how the Hebrew authors, particularly Solomon, would get across his point. So let's begin by looking at interpreting Proverbs. I want to just talk about some general principles. And the first general principle is that Proverbs contains general principles that apply to various situations of life. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, generally, if you live a wise life wanting to honor God, things are going to go well for you. You're not going to get in trouble with the law. Your neighbors are probably going to even like you more. But there are times when living for God and living a wise life leads to trouble, right? People will hate you because you belong to God and you'll be persecuted. So the principles that we're learning here are really general principles. The other thing I would say is that they're really designed, these principles, to help us to love God and to love neighbor. To live that out is the way to think about it. Now, let me just give you this idea to think about. Proverbs is not a code book in which God gives absolute promises. Think about Deuteronomy 28. God says to Israel, if you do this, then I'm going to do that. If you honor my covenant, then I'm going to drive out your enemies. You don't have those kinds of promises in the book of Proverbs. And if we take Proverbs as 100% assurances, we can be let down. Okay, so that's what we want to think about. In fact, let me give you some quotes from some other scholars to try to elucidate this more. This is a couple of scholars that have written a book, an introduction on hermeneutics. They said this, Proverbs state a wise way to approach certain selected practical goals, but do so in terms that cannot be treated like a divine warranty of success. Okay, let me give you an example We all can say generally it's a good idea to wear your seatbelt. But then as soon as you say that, there'll be some joker who will raise their hand and say, wait a minute, I was driving out on the ice on Lake of the Woods and the ice started to crack, we're starting to go through, and because I had my seatbelt on, I almost died and drowned. Right. 
There are times when having your seatbelt on can be an impediment. If your car starts on fire and you're trying to get out and you can't figure out, what is it? Why can't I not get out? And you realize your seatbelt's on. That would be an impediment, right? But generally speaking, if you're driving on the road, your seatbelt is going to aid in survival. That's a generality. What's interesting in our age is generalities are poo-pooed. If you say something that's a generality, people will say, oh, you're just generalizing. Well, of course we are. Of course we are. That's the beginning of wisdom. If you can't make generalities about the world, you know what it means? It means you can't see any patterns. So in the postmodern age, you have parents who don't want to give any generalities to their children thinking they're being woke. But in reality, they're saying, son or daughter, your mother and father is so dense that we can't see any patterns to the way the world is. That's really what they're saying. That's absurd, and that is not the world of Solomon. Solomon saw patterns to the way the world is. And so did the other biblical writers that contributed, and we'll talk more about them. Um, Let me give you another quote here from Robert Stein. Robert Stein, Bob had the opportunity of sitting underneath him at Bethel Seminary before the provost became emergent and and, uh, kicked all the good scholars out. But Robert Stein said this, he says, It is clear that these Proverbs cannot be considered absolute laws because there are exceptions to them. They are, of course, true in general. Okay? Again, without generalities, we can't have wisdom, but there's always exceptions. Let me give you another quote. This is from Walter Kaiser. He said, By their nature and form, Proverbs are generalized statements that cover the widest number of instances but in no case are they to be taken as a set of unbending rules that must be applied in every case without exception. So I say this as a word of caution as we approach the book of Proverbs. Don't look at it as the same as God giving promises at Mount Gerizim. Well, God said, if I did this, then this is going to happen. That's not the book of Proverbs. But the Proverbs is designed to give us wisdom so that we can live lives that are pleasing to him. That's what it's about. Living lives, no matter what the cost, that bring him honor. All right, let's talk about interpreting Hebrew poetry. Again, as I mentioned, we're not going to be learning in huge paragraphs. We're going to be learning from little pithy sayings, great truths. And so I want to talk some about uh, these Hebrew structures. The first I want to talk about is what's called synonymous parallelism. One of the reasons this is important is if you interpret The Proverbs, not understanding some of these poetry structures, you can end up making grave errors, and I'll kind of point them out. The leading parallelism that you'll see in Psalms and in Proverbs is synonymous parallelism. In fact, you'll see it even in narrative. What is synonymous parallelism? Where it's where the second clause or second phrase or line repeats that of the first. But they're saying essentially the same thing. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 1.20 Wisdom shouts in the streets, she lifts her voice in the square. So let me pull up my pointer here. I just want us to see that both clauses are saying really the same thing. Wisdom shouting in the streets is the same thing as she lifting her voice in the square. So don't try to think that, well, he's trying to say two different things or he's adding to it. No, it's the same thing. Now, there's something else that we have going on here in Proverbs one twenty. And that's personification. You'll see that quite often regarding wisdom. Wisdom is personified as a person. 
Now, from that, some people have, I think, wrongly concluded that Jesus is always behind that. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is wisdom because he's God and he is wise. But we don't have to read into it. Just it's personification. And the biblical author uses it to really prove a point. How precious and how important wisdom really is. Now, let me give you another example here. This is from Psalm 51.2. David said, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So notice here, we have the first clause, wash me through thoroughly from my iniquity, is synonymous with what? Cleanse me from my sin. So let's say you had some teacher that was teaching you and saying, well, let's break down what wash me thoroughly from iniquity is. And then they come up with something a little bit different with cleanse me from sin. In other words, we can be so pedantic that we can say, well, let's try to distinguish between iniquity and sin. We ought not to do that here because it's synonymous parallelism. The point of the author is to tell you the same thing, just reiterating it. So if you try to read into something behind sin that's different than iniquity, you're going down a bunny trail that the author didn't intend. That's the warning that we have with synonymous parallelism. Okay, so synonymous parallelism, you're going to get the same thing just in two different lines. So you're going to see a lot of that in the book of Proverbs. Turn to one that's very important for our theology. Turn to Psalm 58.3. Psalm 58.3. Psalm 58.3. Turn your Bibles there. Again, this is another Davidic psalm. Very important for our understanding of total depravity. It's one that I often like to use when I explain total depravity to people. Psalm 58.3. Notice here David says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Okay, so notice the wicked being estranged from the womb is synonymous with what? With those who speak lies and go astray from birth. All right. Now, the importance of that passage, of course, is it shows us that you and I sin because we're born sinners. It's not that you and I are sinners because we sin, although that is true. We do sin. But the reason we sin is because we were born sinners. In Psalm 58.3, using synonymous parallelism, David is telling us that. So what this tells us is that people have a sin nature from the womb. They didn't earn it the first time they sinned. They came out of the chute that way, right? So this gets to our idea of total depravity. This is why Paul says that there's none who seek after him, no, not one. Why? Because right out of our mother's womb, we're born depraved. But again, don't try to read something different in those two clauses because they're saying the same thing, that we are born sinners. Now, let me show you the next type of Hebrew poetry that's used most often or uh, second only to the synonymous parallelism, and that's antithetical. Antithetical parallelism is where the second line contrasts with the first line. So instead of saying the same thing, now you're going to have a contrast between the two lines. Let me give you an example of this. Proverbs 18.23, The poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. Now, this doesn't mean that all rich people are evil. That's not the point. But generally speaking... And no matter what era that you live in, the people who have power are wealthy and they can do things and say things that they never have to apologize for. We're seeing a lot of that today in America 
where the elites can do all sorts of things that the rest of us would go to jail for. And so that's a truism. Those who have the power and the money can do things that the poor can't. So here, what the writer of Proverbs is saying to us is that even though the poor man has done nothing, he has to apologize and be deferential, whereas the wealthy and the powerful often use their positions in a wrong way to cover and mask. And they can even use it to go after the poor man. So we're going to talk more about that. What's interesting is turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 16, 19. I just want you to see that a lot of these Proverbs, these principles are also rooted in the law. Okay, so you're going to see a lot of Solomon, Lemuel, Agur. These are really the three basic Proverbs writers in the book of Proverbs, but it's typically attributed to Solomon who writes a lot of them. You're going to see a lot of understanding of the law. So turn your Bibles again, Deuteronomy 16, verse 19. This is assumed to be true, this Proverbs 18.23 in the law itself. Notice what God said to the Israelites. He said, you shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Okay, so... In the law itself, we see that, you know what, justice is to be blind. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why in America, if you look at Lady Justice, she's blindfolded. That comes from a Judeo-Christian ethos where what matters in the courtroom isn't how much money someone has or doesn't have, but rather what matters are the facts of the case. Now, remember, we also see in the law that someone is not to favor a poor man just because they're poor. Isn't that beautiful? What does that strike against? Marxism, which says you always favor the poor. I remember Elena Kagan, when she was in her confirmation hearing as a Supreme Court justice, she said her goal as a Supreme Court justice was to always help the have-nots. That is not the role of the judge in Israel. In Israel, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or poor. It doesn't matter. What matters are the merits of the case. That's the idea. And so what we see in Proverbs 18.23 here isn't what ought to be. It is what is. In the law, in Deuteronomy 16.19, it is what ought to be. Does everyone catch on to that? So what Solomon is doing is he's not advocating that, yes, the poor should have to utter supplications, and the rich man can answer roughly in any way he wants. He's saying that's the way it is because of the depravity of people in various societies. But he's not advocating for it. Is that that right? So the idea that he's giving us wisdom as to how the world really works. Where in Deuteronomy 16, 19, that's the way God wanted Israel to operate because he was a holy and righteous God. Right, so I hope that helps you kind of formulate some of the distinctions that you're going to see between Proverbs and the law. Yes, the law is certainly understood by the writer of Proverbs, but he understands the world to work in ways that differ from God's. So those are things we have to keep in mind. Now let me give you another example of antithetical. Psalm 1.6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So there we see... The opposite. We know that because the Lord is good and righteous to us, we have life. But he doesn't give it to those who are wicked who don't belong to him. Those who don't have faith are going to perish. 
Now, we can say that that's an absolute. Absolutely it is. It's Psalms, and we have an absolute there. Because one day all the wicked do perish. But if we took that as an absolute to say, well, that means the wicked never prosper during this age, that's not true, is it? Sometimes we know that the wicked do prosper. And sometimes the righteous people end up being punished for righteousness. All right. Uh, let's turn to a few more. I want you to turn to Proverbs 12.5. Let's turn there. Proverbs 12.5. I'll just show you some other examples here. Proverbs 12.5. More antithetical parallelism. It says, The thoughts of the righteous are just... But the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Notice one of the things that tips you off with antithetical parallelism is the but. There's an intended contrast. The thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Okay? So another one, uh, just turn forward. Proverbs 15.1. You're going to see another but. Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Boy, is that a truism. I remember as an airline pilot, I was, most of us as pilots were deathly afraid of the FAA. We always said there was uh, one of the greatest lies in aviation was, I'm from the FAA and I'm here to help you. And you always, if you could just say a nice word to him, you try to always diffuse things and always uh, be kind. And um, it seemed to work normally for me at least. Uh, and it seemed to be those who got in trouble were those who typically would run their mouth off and would uh, go after them a bit. So anyway, you all know examples in your own work and your own life where this certainly works. Now, one interesting thing about this study, and I hope this is something, I kind of want to make it an invitation to all of you. As we proceed in the next months going through Proverbs, if we study a section, I would love for you to bring in your own examples to say, hey, in my life, I remember this happened and it really ties into this proverb. I would love for our, to fill our hour with examples of how these sayings either worked or didn't work in your life. Maybe we always, some, some people always have exceptions. But I think that would be a lot of fun to bring up different scenarios that you've run into where these things really occurred. Okay, so that's antithetical parallelism. Now let's bring up synthetic. Now in synthetic, what we're going to have is the second line develops the first. So you have a first statement, then you have an addition that adds to it. You get more data or information. Proverbs 21.27 is a good example of that. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? So when the sacrifice of the wicked man, he comes, he doesn't have faith, that's bad enough. But how much worse if he brings it with evil intent? Now, what would the evil intent be? Well, is he offering it because he knows he's just going to keep sinning? Or is he going to offer it saying, well, you know, this is foolishness. I don't believe in this anyway, but it's my ritual. I'll do it. We don't know. It leaves it open. There's a lot of ways that the intent of the heart for those who give a sacrifice could be wayward. But the idea is it's bad enough for one who doesn't have faith to offer it. But how much more if they're doing it with a high hand or they're doing it with some bad intention? So you can see that you're added a little bit more information uh, to that. Here's one I think it's important. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 5.4. This is a passage I often use when I give the gospel. You'll hear me use Psalm 5.4. Please turn to Psalm 5.4. 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 Psalm 5.4
Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 5-4. I think this is an important verse, actually. It's one that you want to keep in your back pocket if you're a person who witnesses on the street or you're going to witness to somebody because it shows the issue between humanity and God is that we're incompatible with His righteousness, with His holiness. We can't be in His presence. Notice Psalm 5.4, it begins saying, you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. So God takes no pleasure in evil, but then it adds to that. It says, with you, the wicked cannot dwell. Now think about that last line. Because God doesn't like wickedness, the evil can't dwell with him. The term dwell there, shekan. How many have heard of the Shekinah glory of God? That's his dwelling presence. Okay, so the idea is that the wicked can't dwell with him. Well, what does that mean? Who's the wicked? Have all of us sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Isn't, it, isn't that what it says in Romans 3.23? Well, all of us have done wickedly. So none of us can dwell in the presence of God. That's at the heart what the issue is. We're incompatible with God. It's like oil and water. We don't mix. He is holy and I'm wicked. I can't dwell with him. So I need to be made compatible. Just uh, think about someone standing around a campfire and they put their hand in the fire and it burns them and they start cursing the fire out. You'd say, well, what's wrong with you? Don't you know your hand is incompatible with fire? In the same way, we as those who are wicked are incompatible to be in the presence of God. So what we need, in a sense, is our asbestos put on. And that's the righteousness that we're given in Christ. As soon as you trust in Christ, now you're clothed in his righteousness. Now you're no longer of the wicked. Now you can be in the presence of God. Why? Because you have his righteousness, a righteousness that didn't stem from you, but came from him. That's how we can dwell with him. So you can see Psalm 5.4, synthetic parallelism, but the last line is very critical to understanding. Let me give you another one. Here's Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So the last line, I shall not want, that last little clause, gives us a ramification of the Lord or the Yahweh being our shepherd. Because the Lord is my shepherd, one day I'm not going to need anything. I'm going to be given a resurrection being given all that I need, never to thirst or hunger anymore. All of those ramifications are implied. You won't want, ultimately, if the Lord is your shepherd. But again, you can see an adding to the first clause. All right, so that's synthetic parallelism. Now, let's come to another one. We'll get through these. Emblematic. That's where the second line explains the figure of speech in the first line. You'll see these are a lot like similes. Proverbs 25.13 is a good example of this. Notice the like. Does everyone see it at the very beginning? Like is often used as a simile. If I said someone took off like a rocket ship, I'm not saying they literally are a rocket ship. I'm using the simile. They are really speedy like a rocket ship, or they accelerate fast. Well, in the same way, you see a simile here. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. For he refreshes the soul of his masters. Okay, so notice the like. The like the cold snow is refreshing. So is the what? The faithful messenger who brings the news to those who need it. Okay, so you see the second line is explaining the figure of speech 
in the first. Let me give you another example. Psalm 10.9. He who lies in wait like a lion in cover, he lies in wait to catch the helpless. So what does it mean to lie in wait like a lion? Well, the evildoer is trying to catch someone by surprise. So they're like a lion. Again, it's very much like a simile. That's the emblematic use. Here's another one. Uh, turn your Bibles to Proverbs 25.12. Proverbs 25.12, another example of emblematic parallelism. Proverbs 25.12. Notice it says here, Proverbs 25, 12, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Now, one of the things you're going to see in Proverbs are those who listen and hear the wisdom from God and from others who are godly. The listening is something that benefits them. It brings them further wisdom and leads them on the path of righteousness. But the fool doesn't listen to God's wisdom, doesn't listen to those who know God's wisdom, and they don't learn, and they're on the path to destruction as the fool. And that's one of the things I want you to see in the book of Proverbs. When you look at the book of Proverbs, one helpful suggestion is to see everything through the prism of two paths. You're either on the path of the fool heading towards destruction, or you're on the path of the wise heading towards righteousness in the kingdom. And it's one or the other. Now, that doesn't mean, again, the book of Proverbs is simply a metaphor for whether you're on one path or the other. But the idea is that you're often going to see a distinction between one godly action, an action that's synonymous with those who have wisdom, and actions of those who are perishing. Okay, that's what you'll see. Um, Yeah, Paul. Uh, just two two things to say. First of all, there is a, uh, a term for what you were saying. Those who have money and are arrogant are snobs. Those who do not have er- money and are arrogant are z- is reverse snobbery. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting thought. Yeah. <laughs> Next of all, are you kind of describing the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two different paths, and Solomon is warning. For example, the man who goes after the adulteress... He's making a mistake. He's acting like the fool on the path to destruction. Now, does that mean he's going to forever remain on it? No. But if he keeps going down that road, there's never repentance, and he keeps going. He's on the path to destruction. But the wise man hears the words of his father, who, if he's a righteous man, warned his son, don't go after the uh, flickering eyes of the adulteress. And he stays away. And as he stays away and he makes that a habit of his life, It's an indication that he's on the path of righteousness because his faith is showing itself through its works, right? So that's the idea. And so there's always the wise way and the unwise way in the book of Proverbs. So there's often those contrasts that you'll see. Yep, very good. All right, so with that, we did the, uh, did we do the earring? Yeah, the earring of gold, an ornament of fine gold is, yeah, we did that one, right? All right, let's keep moving on. A chiastic parallelism. The second line repeats the first line in reverse order. A good example of this one is Psalm 18.2. The Lord has dealt with me, first line, and then you have according to my righteousness. So the second line here is explaining how the Lord has dealt with him. 
It was according to his righteousness. Of course, we know righteousness is something imputed to us by God. It's a gift. But then it starts with the same line that we just left off with. According to the cleanness of my hands. Now stop here for a moment. Notice the synonymous relationship between the two accordings, those clauses. According to my righteousness is really synonymous with what? The cleanness of my hands. Does everyone see that? So don't think that they're saying two different things. The cleanness of the hands is synonymous with righteousness. That's the idea. He says, according to the cleanness of my hands, what? He has rewarded me. So notice, he has rewarded me is synonymous with what? The Lord has dealt with me. Okay, so they're not saying two different things. These two phrases, they're identical, they're synonymous, and so are the inner. But you can see the chiasm there. Another example that we're going to come to, we won't do it now, but all of Proverbs 31 is likened to a big chiasm, and we'll unpack those. Uh, Bob has shown you a lot of chiasms in different uh, verses and passages. Um, I have as well. So we'll be coming across more of those, but we'll, we'll pick them out as we go. Um, oh, here, here's one more that's a chiastic that I found is uh, Psalm 22.8. Think about this one. He trusts in the Lord. Here's the righteous man who trusts in the Lord. And then what is it? Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him. Notice these two are synonymous. The rescue and the deliver are the same since he delights in him. And again, delighting in the Lord is the same as trusting in the Lord. Who is that applied to in Matthew 20? It's applied to Jesus. In fact, they mock him on the cross, and this is what they say. It fulfills this very passage. Because he trusted and delighted in the Lord, they mocked him and said, why doesn't the Lord rescue him? And of course, ultimately, the Lord did. Yes, Bob, we'll get you a a microphone. I think that that's a good point, how that was applied. Yeah. But I think there's a lesson in that, because they were taking wisdom literature and applying it as a literal cause and effect mm, wow, that has to happen. Yes. So they were misusing wisdom literature. Very good. Okay, so it makes a good lesson not yes. to do that. Right. Because they were looking at Jesus dying on the cross. God wasn't delivering him from that. Right. So therefore that was proof to them that he didn't delight in him. Right. But they're doing, they're making an error. They're taking wisdom literature as an absolute. Absolutely great application, Bob. So you do, yeah. I, I see you've already got it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, what Bob is saying is here, yes, Psalm 22 8, the mockers at the cross are mocking Jesus with this. And they're, what, they're in, what Bob is saying, I think he's exactly right, is. They're insinuating these mockers that if Jesus was really godly and he was really righteous, God would deliver him. And therefore, because he's not delivered, he dies on the cross. He doesn't really belong to God. He's really not a righteous one. He's not one who God favors. But they're misapplying the passage in Psalm 22.8, wisdom literature, which isn't designed to give you a 100% foolproof promise. Just like if you always wear your seatbelt, you're never going to get hurt in a car accident. Generally, they help. But if you're driving on the ice and you break through, it it could be a problem. Right? There There are exceptions. Now, we can say, again, ultimately Jesus ends up being exonerated. There's kind of a, you have to wait to find the exoneration of Christ. On the third day, he's raised up. 
right? But at the time, he dies on the cross. And the irony, the irony is that he is God himself. He is the one who is taking our payment. He has to stay on the cross. And if he doesn't, we're lost in our sins, right? right? So, but Bob is rightly saying, look, they're misapplying the wisdom literature themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I also, um, uh, I, I learned this from a, a person who did a lot of teaching on these things, who was a Hebrew scholar, and what yeah. you're saying is absolutely true. And the other thing, I just want to mention this because I think it's true. I, I was taught this, um, and that is that the rabbis you know, in Jesus' time, uh, their disciples would understand the Old Testament so well. Oftentimes, they had things memorized. And so when a rabbi wanted to bring attention to an entire psalm, they they would repeat the first line of it. And so when Jesus, before he died, he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Uh, Some people used to say this, and I mean, I used to kind of not have an answer to this. People would say, well, look, Look at Jesus. He was the most surprised guy in Jerusalem when he got crucified. Because look what he said. But what he was doing as a as a rabbi uh, was pointing out the prophecy Psalm of his crucifixion yeah, to everybody while he was being crucified. So uh, I just wanted to bring that up. It's just something worth remembering. I think. Very good point. Yeah, Eric, you're exactly right. Oftentimes they knew the entire sections of the Old Testament by heart. And um, there are oral culture. In fact, that's why you see the Psalms. You have acrostic uh, figures, you know, ways of remembering the Psalms and different things. Um, in Hebrew, there's also things like, for example, do you remember last, um, was it last week or two weeks ago, I was talking about the Tower of Babel? If you read that in Hebrew, they built bricks, and there's a certain assonance of the Hebrew consonants. Well, when God comes down and he confuses it, the consonants are reversed to show that he's undoing the bricks. But we don't see that in English. And I, I didn't have time to get into that. But So there's things that are going on that help them remember. And you're exactly right. If he brought up, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, they go there. They would have known that exactly. Now, it's interesting because he really is forsaken as well. In the sense that he who knew no sin becomes a curse, a sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it's true. And it also brings them to that passage. And so, yes, he's the substitution, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So you're exactly right, though. I think it brought their attention to that passage. So, yeah, very interesting. Thanks for this great discussion. Now, I didn't think it would be that interesting going through all these uh, parallelisms, but you guys are making it very interesting. Thank you. All right, let's, uh, I think we only have a couple more. Analytics, second line gives consequences to the first line. Now, by the way, as we go through these, what will be kind of fun in the next months We'll be able to wrestle with this. Some will say, well, I think it's synonymous. And someone will say, well, I think it's analytic. And, and then we'll have big divides and we'll have church splits over it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just having fun there. Okay, Proverbs 25.8. Here's an analytic one. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, here's the consequence. He instructs sinners in the way. And again, notice the term way. Um, it could be the road. That's, that's, remember the two ways of Proverbs? You're either on the way of salvation or the way of the fool to destruction. There it is. That's, uh, David is saying the same thing, or whoever the psalmist there is in Psalm 25. All right? um, by the way, the term de- uh, for way there can be rendered road. It's, the term is derek in Hebrew. Okay, so you could literally say, therefore he instructs them in the road. They're in the road of salvation or the road of perdition. But here would be the way of salvation. All right, 
Proverbs 20, 20, he who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in a time of darkness. Wow. So what's the consequence of cursing your father and mother? You're going to die early. What does that remind you of? What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother so that what? It goes well with you in the, in the land. So the implication is if you're a cursor of your father and mother, well, you've got a serious problem. Because if you're rebelling against that authority, is there any other authority that, that which you'll accept? No. And so if you reject all authority, it's just not going to go well with you. So this is something I tell my son over and over. I said, believe it or not, honoring your father is going to go well with you. Not because I'm some genius, but because if you don't get in the habit of honoring your father and mother, you're going to be rebelling against all the other authorities. And I may grace you, but the police officer might not, or the district attorney or whatever. Are, are, you, are you all with me? So there, there's great wisdom here. And by the way, what's the lamp? The lamp is a symbol of what? The life. The lamp being extinguished means their, their life goes out. They're going to die early. It's not going to go well with them in the land. So again, you see the connection between Proverbs here and the law. Again, now, what about those who bless their mother and father? And they're nothing but good sons and daughters. Does that mean they all live to 100? No. No. Again, that's where we can get ourselves into trouble. We can say, oh, that's an absolute promise. I honor my mother and father. I'm going to live to 95. It's not necessarily true. We all know those who are great sons and daughters who unfortunately died. So again, that's why we have to understand Proverbs aren't giving us 100% promises. Okay. Now, let's turn to climactic parallelism. That's where the second line repeats and advances the first line. Psalm 94.3. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? So notice there's just a repeat of the first line, but then it adds what? How long are they going to exalt? We find out what he's asking. We see another one, Psalm 7, 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. So notice the first line. All we know is he wants the Lord to rise up. But then we find out here it's to rage against his enemies, to rise up against the rage of his enemies. That's why he wants them to rise up. So that's climactic. And you'll see those. So here's my goal. As we go through the book of Proverbs, these are the main parallelisms that you're going to see. And again, you're going to have this as a handout. Keep it handy in your Bible. And as you go through the section that we're going through for the next week, you can kind of look and say, hey, I think that's climactic, or I think that's um, antithetical, or I think that's synonymous, or this happens to be... Um, this type of parallelism. You can look, and we can find those things out. Now, with that, I want to talk about your homework assignment. Remember, I gave you three questions. Hi, Ed. We have three questions that I gave you from last time. And that is, what are the first one was, what are the main four purposes of the book of Proverbs? Does anyone want to take a stab at the four main purposes of the book of Proverbs? Would anyone want to take a stab at that, at the old homework assignment? I didn't do my homework. Oh, well, you're on vacation. That's all right. <laughs> so Bob, just to reiterate over the microphone, Bob was confessing he was on vacation. He didn't get to do his homework. because He was on the beach and eating seafood, he said. So that's excusable. All right. Anybody want to take a stab at it? Oh, yeah, Brian. Let's try to get the microphone to Brian. I'm not going to do all four, but I'll oh, okay. do at least one. 
All right, we'll, we'll do one at a time then. That's right. <laughs> I would say to provide godly wisdom would yeah. be number one. Amen. Okay. Amen. Absolutely. That's one of them. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Nancy. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, last time I gave an assignment, there were three questions. The first one we're going to wrestle with, what are the main four purposes of the book of Proverbs? And those are actually found in the first four verses, I believe, of Proverbs 1. Uh, By the way, um, if you want to have more information on this, Dana Birkinshaw did a really good job on his introduction in the book of Proverbs. And you can listen to his uh, message. It's all recorded. You can find it at gospelofgracegf.church. That's ggf.church, and you'll find it, and he'll give you a lot more information than we can get into here. But um, the second question was, what seems to be the difference intended between knowledge and wisdom? Is there any difference between knowledge and wisdom? And the third question was, what seems to be Solomon's ultimate goal in teaching others wisdom? So, I'm sorry, Paul. Yeah, like Brian, I'm only going to throw out a couple ideas. One is to guide us, and the other one is to show consequences. Yeah, I think you're right, absolutely. Let's, um, let's put up the passage here and let's go through it. Here's the declaration by Solomon. He says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Now, does everyone see where he says to know? What's interesting is in the Hebrew, there's a preposition. Okay, so what we wrestle with is, the, the scholars wrestle with, is they wrestle with how to interpret that. How should they translate that? And I think it's right. There's a purpose for this. So right away, Solomon is beginning with purposes, purpose clauses. What's the purpose of Proverbs? Well, to know wisdom and instruction. There's number one, to know wisdom and instruction. Uh, Second, to discern the sayings of understanding. Now, that's roughly synonymous, but what does it mean to discern? Well, to know the difference between the way of the fool when he tells you something and the way of the wise when he tells you something. And ultimately, what's the main arbiter? Well, the scriptures. So if you have a biblical worldview, let's say my son goes out into the world, he doesn't have a biblical worldview, he can't distinguish between the way of the fool and the way of the wise. He'll have no way of discerning. So that's why we have to know the scriptures. We have to have a biblical worldview. Uh, Notice number three, to receive instruction in wise behavior. What does the fool do? He doesn't receive it. He rejects it. But the wise man receives it. So here is the attitude. I'm going to be willing to receive something from a wise man. If Bob tells me something, I know his track record. He's a wise man. And if he says something to me, I'm going to take it to heart. But if I don't know some person and they come out of a pagan temple and they tell me something, I'm going to be a little suspect. I don't know if I'm going to receive that. So we're going to know when to receive instruction or a correction. That's the third. The fourth one is to do what? And these are synonymous. To give prudence to the naive and to the youth knowledge. There's a special emphasis on bringing the youth and the fool up in their wisdom. In our culture, how many know in here that the way of the youth is always elevated and the way of the elderly person is always put down? Remember the saying in the 1960s, don't trust anyone over 30? I wasn't alive then. But, but I know of it from, from whatever. My mom and dad probably told me. Giving me instruction, right? But isn't it interesting, in a culture that's foolish, they elevate the way of the fool, the child. 
So in Isaiah chapter 5, what God does as a way of punishing Israel, he gives them over to the leadership of the young. And he removes the elder from them. It's the opposite in America. The left says, no, the younger you are, the more you should vote. And don't listen to these elderly people. They're trying to lead you astray. Everything's upside down. Because they're, and I say this not in the ultimate sense, but right now they're acting as what? Fools. It's a foolish culture that elevates the young as being the wise. That's not the way it is in the scripture. Okay, so these are the four ways. Let me just translate this a little bit. So I say the four purposes are to know wisdom, to understand the difference between wisdom and foolishness, to have moral insight, and to move from immaturity to maturity in thought. That's the way I would describe it. The last one, think about if you don't have prudence or knowledge given to the youth, they're going to remain immature. They're just going to remain in that world. Um, How many know that um, marriage will give you some wisdom. Why? Because you can't live just for yourself. And so you grow in wisdom. But what is that a part of? It's a part of maturity. What do we have happen in our culture? We have people that don't get married for many, 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 many years. And it's not, again, you know, people are free. There's free to marry, not to marry. And you have people that are wise who are single. And you have people that are unwise that are married. That's certainly true. But the point is in mass... Being married brings wisdom. Why? Because you have to mature. So maturity in Scripture, learning to live for others, loving the Lord your God and loving others as yourself, is something that belongs to the wise. But the fool, he doesn't live for the, the other person. He doesn't live for the kingdom. He lives to get all he can here and now. That's something you're going to see throughout the book of Proverbs. So Solomon wanted to give wisdom, yes, to all people, but especially to the youth and those who were naive. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Proverbs 1.7. Let's look at Proverbs 1.7. I'll actually put this up here in a moment again, but Proverbs 1.7. Notice it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wow, so there's a, there's a little bit of an antithetical parallelism, isn't there? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the way of the wise, isn't it? Now, what does it mean to fear God? The term there for fear does literally mean to have fear, but it also means reverence. Uh, think about what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear him who can destroy the body, that's man, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's to fear God. And so part of fear really is being afraid, to know that God is the one that we answer to. He is the one that's going to be our judge. And so in my daily life, if I have that in my mind and I'm going to live for him because I know ultimately I answer to him, I'm going to live differently than if I'm always trying to be a man pleaser and worried about what they think. Uh, do you guys? How many months ago was it there was a black police officer? I just love this man. Someone wanted to bow his knee. And it was at some rally, some Antifa, Marxist, BLM rally. And this man wisely said, I only bow my knee to one man. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought, amen, brother. That's exactly right. He gets it. It's the fear of the Lord. He has wisdom. Now, I wish the crowd would have listened to him. But that's where wisdom begins. It begins with fear of the Lord. Now, fear of the Lord is tied to having faith. 
And faith is tied to obedience. Not because we're justified by obedience, but obedience follows faith. You always act on what you really believe. So because we trust in who the Lord is, we fear him. So in other words, if you fear the Lord, it's evidence that you have what? You have faith. So fear is an outflowing of a true faith in the Lord. That you really know who he is. And what he requires. Yeah, Rich. Yeah, as a boy, I remember as a boy looking at these scriptures, and I remember talking to somebody, I won't say who the person is, but I said, fear of the Lord, what does that mean? Yeah. And, and she said to me, well, it doesn't really mean fear, fear. Growing up in the scriptures, no, it really means fear God. I mean, we really are to fear God. Do not fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can throw your butt into, into hell. That is whom you should fear. That is really the proper understanding. Amen, Rich. And again, I'm not trying to deny that there isn't an idea of reverence also associated with it, but you're right. What we've tried to do is to get rid of all sense of fear. By the way, that's why I think God uses masculine pronouns. Um, how many here ever heard, wait till your father comes home? <laughs> that was a routine saying in my house. <laughs> Always in trouble, and when dad gets home, you're going to get it. Um, how many like that movie, The Christmas Story, where Ralphie's in trouble and, oh, the father comes home, right? He's going to be in big trouble. There's an element of the father that, yes, the father loves his son or his daughter, but there's an element of don't mess with your father. Um, Bill Cosby, I hate to bring him up because I know he's had some, some personal problems, but years ago, before that was all known, I used to enjoy his comedy, and I remember his dad would say to him, he said, boy, I brought you in this world. I'll take you out, too. <laughs> so there's an element of that with the father. And so it's not that the father isn't loving, but it's that the father has a strong hand. And so that's why you see this idea of fear. Yes, the Lord loves us, but he also chastises those who belong to him. And, we, and for those who don't belong to him, he punishes eternally. Okay, so a lot of people will say, well, why don't we use feminine pronouns? Because after all, God is neither feminine nor male. He is spirit. But I have a sneaking suspicion we should go with what the scriptures reveal. And the reason why God is revealed oftentimes in the masculine, almost exclusively, is because what? Because there's a power behind the Holy One of Israel. Yes, he loves, but he also disciplines like a father. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, maybe I can talk louder. Remember, at seven, at least when I was at seminary. Yes. In the nineties, if you turned in a paper. Oh yeah. Using. Same with me. Generic. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Carly. Generic pronouns in the masculine, just like the Bible does. Yeah. You get an F. Right. And so you had we had to work and work and work to figure out how to make the English language work for the rules that were put on us by the yeah. seminary. Right. And so then in some class discussions, this was just people were saying, well, we're offended if we hear anything yeah. like God being he. Right. Uh, we, want to, we need a neutered Bible. And, uh, and so I remember one of those, I was always the one that would jump in and yeah. say something. And so I said, well, Okay, so if you're saying to us that certain people can't come to God because they had a bad experience with men at some point, because if God's portrayed as he, then they can't come to God. Right. As I said, okay, so I want to know this. Was not Jesus Christ 
incarnate a male person. Yeah. Right, amen. Yes or no? Yes. Well, everybody said yes. Yeah. I said, okay. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if you're saying you can't come to God if there's anything male about it, right? well, then you're saying I can't be saved. That's right. Because you can't get rid of the fact that Jesus was a male person. That's right. I said that in a class when they were having this debate, <laughs> and everything it just went silent. <laughs> What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Right. Well, just go by what the Bible says. Don't be offended. God is showing you love by sending his son, Jesus, to die for your sins. Don't be offended that he was a male. Amen. Exactly right. Well said, Bob. I had the same same experience at at Bethel. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Back on that. Now, yeah. we, we know God is spirit. He's not male or female. That is right. absolutely 100% true. Yeah. But don't we refer to him as God the Father? Absolutely. That's right. Exactly. And there's a reason for that. And again, I think part of that, and again, I'm not saying it's exhaustively that, but we see the idea of fear of the Lord. And so that's why we see this imagery of him being powerful. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. In the seminaries, what had happened is, remember the 1920s, Marxism comes to America and because the bourgeoisie, the haves, and the proletariat, the have-nots, are getting along too well, the Marxist agenda was to try to find ways to break people into haves and have-nots apart from their work settings. In other words, if you were a factory owner or a factory worker, that wasn't working to divide them along those lines. They're getting along too well. So that's where there's what I call the unholy trinity of Marxism came in, race, class, gender. Let's break them down there. And so that's why it infiltrated these seminaries where you had to have this gender-neutral language. Why? Because you have the genders that are the haves, the males, and you have the genders that are the have-nots, the females. Everything is seen through that prism. Why do they hate Israel and they love the Palestinians? Because the Palestinians are the have-nots in their view, and the Israelis are the haves. Everything was seen through that prism, and it drove me nuts. So here you have people who are teaching in seminary. They're teaching people to be followers of Marx rather than Christ. And so in Genesis 1.27, where God says that he made them, male and female, he uses the term avam, which is translated mankind. So mankind is male-female. So it's not divorcing the female. There's something very important about the female that also brings up mankind. So if you use the term mankind in a paper, you'd get an F by your Marxist professor. But the biblical author wanted you to understand that there's something profound about Adam, mankind, in Genesis 1.27 that is both male and female. That we need one another. That it's complementary. It's not exclusive. That there's something important. Now, um, what do you do with that? Like Bob said, you have to pick your battles. You know, if, if all Bob did is fight on that gender issue, you never get anything else done. And that was what was so sad, is so Marxist were some of these places that you had to pick your battles on what you're going to fight about because it's all you would do. You could never get an assignment done. You would just fight. That's how bad a lot of the seminaries are, sadly. And they're not getting better. Bob Stein is the only professor. I know others disagreed with it. Yeah. But he, Bob Stein was the only professor I saw publicly stand up against that. Yes. And that That's took right. a lot of courage. That's right. Amen. You know why, in my opinion, men, men like Bob Stein had fear of the Lord. He bowed his knee to the Lord. He didn't care what the provost thought. He doesn't care. 
And there's at, a, some, at some point in our lives, we all have to put, take a stand and say, I really ultimately care what Jesus thinks. Now, that doesn't mean we go around trying to be overtly offensive. That's not, remember Paul said, I became all things to all people so that by all possible means some may be saved. 1 Corinthians 9, what Paul meant by that, remember he says to the Jew, I became like one who was a Jew. To the Gentile, I became like one who was a Gentile. His point is simply that he wanted to remove all offenses other than the offense of the gospel. But once the gospel or the word of God is attacked, we have nowhere to move. And that's what was going on in these seminaries. That's why I met Bob. I met Bob because I ended up confronting the provost. I couldn't take it anymore. All of the Marxist absurdities. And so he and I ended up fighting the heresy there. And, um, but at some point, dear ones, it's, it all boils down to the fear of the Lord. Are we going to fear what our professor thinks or some Marxist on the faculty at Bethel or whatever? Or are we going to care about what the Holy One of Israel thinks? And dear ones, that's going to be more important in the months and years that go by as persecution perhaps gets even graver in America. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Always think of that with Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, do not fear he who can destroy the body. That's what man can do. But fear him, that's God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's the eternal perspective that we have to have. That's the beginning of wisdom, according to Solomon. Now, we'll finish this. I've got some more things that I think will be interesting to you. Uh, for next time. But what we'll do is we'll finish those last two items. And um, again, just keep reading Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. I want to just, we're going to focus on those verses for next time. We may give, get further as well. Um, at some point, I'm going to have you do an assignment that'll be a little bit out of order. It'll be, how many have heard of this, this proverb, train up the child in the way he should go? What's very interesting is the better rendering that is train up the child in his way. There's actually a third person masculine singular pronominal suffix on that. Don't get too nerdy. But what that means is it's his way, the child's way. And so what we do is we often take that proverb to mean, hey, if you find the natural bent of your son and you train him up, he's never going to depart from it. But in reality, I think what it means is that if you allow your son or your daughter to go in their natural way, the way of the fool, the way of the unregenerate. You don't break them out of it. They're going to go that way forever. So with that understanding, all of a sudden you see the importance of getting the scriptures and the word of God into our kids. Not that we can guarantee anything. That's regeneration. But those are the things that we're going to wrestle with. Okay. So what I want you to do is let's finish those last two homework agenda items next week. But we'll focus on the first seven verses. And then I might add that other assignment uh, the next time. Okay, so thanks everyone for listening and for getting your heads around this uh, whole idea of parallelism in Hebrew poetry. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for wisdom. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us every book of the Bible. And we do pray that you'd give us wisdom and understanding as to how your world works, as to what pleases you. And we we ask, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom so that we may honor and glorify your name in the days that we have. We do pray, Lord, that we would bow our knee only to you and that we'd live ultimately to be pleasing to you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. I also pray, Lord, for the last message in Ephesians. Uh, We thank you for what Bob has done and how he's brought such clarity to the doctrine of the church. And we do pray that you'd speak through him, open our minds again to hear what you have to say for us, Lord. Help us to live lives that are pleasing to you through it. In Jesus' name, amen.